Section 2 of Ancient Ideals in Modern Life Four Lectures This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Sushil C. Ancient Ideals in Modern Life Four Lectures by Annie Besant Lecture 1 The Four Ashramas Part 1 Brothers, for five and twenty years the Theosophical Society has been at work in the world, carrying out, amid many difficulties and against many obstacles, the great work entrusted to its charge. During these five and twenty years it has been gathering experience, it has been learning its strength and its weakness, it has found out many mistakes, it has corrected many blunders, it has learned the lessons of experience which will serve it well in the centuries that lie ahead. The ending of the 25th year of the society coincides with the ending of the century as marked by the Western calculation and, as you know, just about the same time, there ends one of the smaller cycles reckoned from the Eastern standpoint. So we find ourselves today at one of those periods in the world's history at which great changes are initiated and great impulses given for the forward movement of humanity. It is a time of great opportunities but also a time of great responsibilities when choices made are full of great results, when steps taken decide the path along which nations will go for many a year, perhaps for many a century to come. At this standpoint then, I ask you with me to look forward as well as backward. I ask you to look forward to that which India may become for the world. I ask you to look forward to that destiny which it is within her power to accomplish if she takes the right step. I call you to stand for a moment at this meeting of the ways and see along which way you will elect to tread. The choices that the gods give to the nations are choices which cannot be avoided. But upon the nature of the choice which answers to the summons from above depends the immediate destiny of the nation and the part which it will have to play in the near future of the world. The society founded by some of the great rishis of India to do certain work in the world is a society that by its very nature and constitution should be prepared to take a leading part in this choice. If among the Hindus who have come into the society there is not the courage of initiation and the power to help India at the stage of her destiny, then, for the East, the society will largely have failed in its purpose. And its failure in the East will bring about its failure in the West. For, as momentous to the society is the way along which it elects to go, as is momentous for the nation the path along which it decides to tread. For the last seven years, I have been living and working among you, trying to understand, trying to grasp the conditions and the difficulties of the situation, trying to see along which road the redemption for India may possibly be found. Surely during these years, I may at least have so lived as to win from you trust enough to believe that my heart is Hindu as yours, my faith and my hope the same as yours. And if, in the study that lies before us, I speak words with which any of you may disagree, 
and on such topics, disagreement is inevitable. I pray you to believe that I speak with pure intent, with love for India and for India's faith. Any errors I may make are errors of the head, not of the heart. And if on some points I have to speak on facts that I, and I think most of you, look on with grief and shame, it is in the hope that recognizing the facts, we may find a way to lead India out of her present condition, that we may find the road where the blessings of the gods may rest on India, leading her to take her right place amid the nations and fitting her to be the spiritual teacher of mankind. In speaking of the subjects, there is a definite plan that I propose to follow. First, I shall sketch the ancient ideal, so far as I can, of course, for no tongue of man may sketch that divine ideal as it really is in the eyes of the gods and in the hearts of the great rishis who threw down the reflection of that image on the world. But at least I hope so to speak of that ideal that you may see its beauty, that, above all, you may estimate its value, not only to India, but to the whole world at large. It does not exist for any one land, though it was given to one land. It exists for all the world, but it cannot spread over the world unless it spreads from its centre. The ancient ideals are in your charge, placed in your hands by those who gave them to the Indian people. And it must not be that, in any change needed to adapt India to modern environment, those great ideals shall be blurred or their brightness diminished. They must keep their full spiritual glory, their fair proportions, and their pure outlines. All changes must be to make them again shine out in practice, and not to alter or lower them according to the passing fashions and fancies of the day. I shall, in every case, first try to put the ancient ideal before you, and then, in sad and bitter contrast, the present as it is. A contrast so terrible and so heartbreaking that any lover of India might well weep tears of blood over what might be the ideal and what is the actual in India. A contrast so terrible indeed that, were it not that we believe that the gods were ever watching over India, we might sink down and say that no revival for India is possible. But since we believe that the spiritual forces are mighty enough to subdue all things, there still lingers in the hearts of some of us the hope that India may yet produce children spiritual enough to lead the necessary changes along the right road with hearts heroic enough to sacrifice themselves for the mother of us all, and so make possible the redemption of which we dream, for which we dare to hope. The third part of each discourse, then, after the ideal and the actual, will deal with the changes which may lead India from her present position to the height which is her rightful place and which she ought to occupy in the world of the future, in the evolution of humanity, her rightful place as the teacher the spiritual teacher of mankind. This is the study to which we are going to devote ourselves, and to this I shall try to win your assent and sympathy, and more, your active work. The first lecture will be largely of the nature of an introduction, and I fear it may tax your patience by its length, for I want to put before you a world picture. Unless I can show you the great goal at which we are to aim, all the later proposals will be unintelligible, and will lose their power to attract you by their fitness for the proposed end. You must see the goal, 
before you can estimate the rightness or the wrongness of the path that assumes to lead to it. And that goal is a greater one than many of you dream. I must open by asking you to take a wider look at history than you are wont to do. And that, not from the standpoint of the physical plane, where nation is warring against nation, where one is jealous of the other, where the desire of one is to rule the other, where there is the hatred of the oppressed and the tyranny of the strong. Leave all these things aside. They are but the things of the physical plane. Let us rise to a point when some glimpse of the divine plan may be seen, so that we may be able to recognize at least something of the part to be played in connection with it by the nation with which we are concerned. Where is India standing now? What is her environment? Looking back over the past centuries, we see that nation after nation has invaded India, has tried to settle in her, and has tried to rule her. One nation after another has been, as it were, tried in order to find out whether it had the qualities in it which made a common future with India possible. See how one nation after another from the West has tried to establish itself within her borders. You need not go so far back as the invasion of the Greeks to see how one European nation after another has made a little footing in India's soil and then has fallen into the background. You only need to look two or three centuries back to see how the Portuguese, the Dutch, the French have made attempts to dwell on Indian soil and yet have well nigh disappeared. Then there came a colony from the far west, the colony of England, and that has grown, has spread, has increased its power until, at the present day, we find the great dominant power of England extending directly over the great portion of India and influencing very largely those portions of the country which are not under her immediate sway. As a result of this, we find here East and West living side by side, England and India established in this vast peninsula, parts, as it were, of one great empire, an empire which shows signs of becoming one of the great world empires of history. We see, as we glance backwards, that from time to time on the stage of history, there arises a power which moulds into one nationality many nations and builds up a mighty fabric of a world empire, ruling undisputed over the earth. You will find that every sub-race of what the theosophists call our great Aryan race has had such a world empire in connection with its own development. The first branch of the Aryan people who settled to the south of the Himalayas built a mighty empire. Although the Aryan civilization was not far extended and outside the borders of India, most of the people were uncivilized and there existed great masses who were barbarians. Still, we find them paying tribute and under due subordination and the great rulers of the earth were along the line of the past monarchs of India. When we follow the birth of one sub-race after another, the same truth comes out. The world empire of the Arcadians, the Babylonians, which joined Babylon and Chaldea, is another world empire belonging to another sub-race. Then, coming to the sub-race of the Iranians, we have the empire of Persia dominating the civilized world and ruling over the subject nations. Then we find the world empire of the Celtic sub-race, with its center in Rome, dominating the world, as did the other empires that had passed away before it. 
Each of these world empires nursed in itself the growth of its own sub-race and formed the guard around the cradle in which the new sub-race was born. The fifth sub-race, the Teutonic, has not yet completed itself and already signs are visible that it has to accomplish the same destiny in human evolution. There is dawning now on the vision of the earth a vast Teutonic world empire formed by the English and their colonies with their huge offshoot of the United States and with the Germans bound in close alliance. That world empire will be the next to dominate humanity, in order that, by its great power, imposing peace upon the world, it may be the cradle of the next sub-race, whose watchword is peace instead of war, whose watchword is brotherhood instead of competition. That race will be born in the midst of the world peace, and peace will be characteristic of its civilization. What is the part that India is to play therein? You may find her a conquered nation, won by the sword, ruled by the sword, and that sword held in the hand of the dominant factor in the coming world empire. But at the same time, you find her thought, her teaching, her ancient literature, translated into the English tongue, which is the most widely spread tongue on earth and is fast becoming the world language, which is spreading in every direction, which is talked by the foremost nations of the world. Thus, while politically she is subject, her thought is beginning to dominate the whole of that Western civilization. That is the first point which marks the place that India will have in this great evolution. In the older days, she was the spiritual leader of the world, and now nations are being prepared to recognize her again in that loftiest and most sacred of characters. Her great teachings are becoming assimilated all over the world through this vehicle of a world language which is being made part of our own national life. As her teachings are more and more widely accepted, what will be the one supreme teaching which will come as the keynote of all the next civilization? The great teaching of India, the most precious, the most vital, and the most far-reaching, is the unity of the self, the one self in which all things are, and which lives and moves in all. That is India's central and most important teaching. There is one self, one existence. In that life, all other lives inhere. In that consciousness, all other consciousnesses have their roots. There is but one, without a second, and in that, all things exist. That is the teaching which, spoken by the mouth of India, is spreading over the whole world. And behold, that is the very keynote of the race that is to be born. That race will recognize the spiritual unity of all humanity. Therefore, it is that unity, the one obligatory object of the Theosophical Society, the recognition of the brotherhood of man, which can only be defended on the ground of a spiritual unity. All men are brothers, no matter what their color may be, no matter what their race, no matter what their traditions, customs, and origin may be. They all are within the spiritual unity which underlies all mankind. That is the keynote of the next sub-race, the mark of the coming civilization. Is it without significance that the keynote of the coming sub-race is the supreme teaching of India? If this possession of the teaching is to bear fruit, 
what is the next step that India must take? India must fit herself for the great position and build up a nation worthy to be the spiritual teacher of mankind. If India can do that, if she can build up again her religion in the purity of ancient ideals, in possession of all the spiritual forces contained in the inheritance of the past, if India can train her sons to be noble in character, pure in life, lofty in intelligence, spiritual in aspiration, then India's part in the world empire will not be the part of a conquered nation, but of an integral part of that empire, honoured as the teacher and religious guide to the nations of the world. She will be no longer a subject nation, but will be a part of a mighty commonwealth, some of her sons sharing the burden of the world empire as counsellors and rulers, while her teachers bring their great religion to spiritualize every other faith, bring the wisdom of the past to enlighten the ignorance of the present, noble, honoured and everywhere revered. That is the possibility before you, but only if you rise to the height of your destiny and fit yourselves to be entrusted with such mighty power. That, then, is the goal to be aimed at, and the means is the training, the education of the people, the raising of man by man until the whole nation is raised. Do not deceive yourselves of imagining that the greatness of the past will make by itself the greatness of your future. If you cannot rise to greatness, there is no greatness possible for India. For the greatness of a nation is measured by the individual greatness of her sons. And unless Indians can be great, how can India be mighty? Have you the stuff in you to make part of such a world empire? Only the gods can tell. But they have given you the opportunity which shows that the possibility is there. For the gods have never offered opportunity unless the one to whom it is offered has in him the possibility of success. It is for us to try to build that success, not only into a possibility, but into a certainty, as may be done if our hearts are heroic, and if we are willing to strive to make ourselves worthy of that future. Such, then, the goal. The critical question now is, can India adapt herself to this modern environment? A part of India is determined not to move at all, but to stay where it is. That means death. Life may be measured by the power to adapt the body, the mind and the whole nature to the environment in which by the divine providence an organism is placed. People talk of the spirit of the age, some with enthusiasm, some with contempt, some with love, some with hatred, some with a desire to go with it and some with a desire to oppose it. What is, then, the spirit of the age? Fundamentally, it is the divine impulse carrying man along the road of evolution. It is often surrounded by blunders, often hidden by mistakes, often impeded by the childish ignorance of those whom Ishvara is endeavouring to guide. The true spirit of the age should and must be studied in order that we may see whether the divine will is leading the world. Do you think that any other will can guide this world save the will of Ishvara himself? Are men so strong, do you imagine, that they can turn the car of evolution against the will of Ishvara? Amidst the jarring wills, the foolish deeds, the mistakes, the blunders, and the sins of mankind, 
the one divine will is working out its unchangeable purpose and moulding even men's follies and crimes to the working out of its own supreme purpose. For humanity is the potter's clay, which is set on the wheel, and as the potter turns his wheel, so does Ishwara turn the world wheel, whereon the clay is human heart and human mind, and the vessels are formed by him and by none other. We are blind and foolish if we set ourselves against the deep-running tendencies of the day. Many tendencies are superficial, but our duty is to study and to understand the main current, the current of evolution, and then to bring our energies to cooperate with the divine purpose. For all that goes against the will must be shattered into pieces, while all that goes with it is part of his life and an organ for his work. To set ourselves stubbornly to stand in one place and to say, because this in the past was good, therefore it must be good for the present and the future. Therefore I will not mold myself to the tendencies of the age, nor adapt myself to my environment. This is to be dead, that is to be fossilized, that is to be left behind in the forward march of evolution. On the other hand, to go forward with headlong precipitancy, without thought or consideration, without reverence for the past, without understanding the causes it has set up, the tendencies it has bequeathed, that spells ruin, as much as immovability and fossilization spell death. Between these two dangers, then, the nation has to steer its way. Between those who will change nothing so that India cannot live, and those who will change everything so that India will practically disappear. Neither of these roads is the road that the wise should tread. We should preserve the Indian type, the Indian spirituality. That is the problem. For spirituality is India's special charge in the world's future. But while preserving India's type and India's spirituality, we should weave into India's national life everything good, everything valuable that every other nation has to give, everything of value that modern progress has acquired. We should choose and discriminate, take what is good and reject what is evil, neither become westernized by swallowing everything that the West has without regard to India's type, nor become a dead fossil, interesting to the geologists of the future, bearing no part in the living evolution of the race. This is the problem. If we can solve it rightly, then India has a future, a future so glorious that it will be greater than her past. If we cannot solve it, then India falls out of the nations of the world and some other nation, taking up her knowledge and wielding it with all that is good in the West, will take the place that is India's birthright as eldest son of the Aryan race. But surely, that shall never be her fate. She cannot disappear from the world. India, beloved of the gods, she cannot thus vanish from the world's history while they are ruling. Make no mistake, if this is to be done, it is to be done by sacrifice. For no good thing is won without sacrifice. No great gift is given, save when the fire of sacrifice has gone up to heaven and made its appeal to the mighty ones there. India cannot be redeemed unless India's sons are ready to give themselves for their race, to offer themselves up on the altar of sacrifice for India's future. For prejudices are strong. There is a mass of ignorant prejudices and conventions against which the bravest hearts must dash themselves in order to break it down. 
Some hearts will be broken in the attempt, but as they break, they will leave their impress on that wall of dogged prejudice, and it will be the weaker because they have suffered. Are there any among you prepared to act as well as speak, prepared to live as well as talk? Will you give merely what is so easy to give, the applause of your hands instead of the work of your lives? Will you speak warmly in this hall for the changes that must be made in order that India may live, and then go out into the world outside and live the life of the majority, as though the ideal was never put before you, doing what everybody does? Have you not in you the courage and the devotion to set an example, and to give up your own social position, nay, even your lives, or far, far harder, your children's lives, to sacrifice those on the altar in order that India may survive. If some of you will do that, then the future is secure. But if you are all cowards at heart, then the sentence will pass. Destiny will put its pen through India's name, and India will exist no more. Such, then, are the introductory ideas that govern these lectures. Let us pass from them to the ideals of the past, to the actual of the present, and to the future that we are going to try to build. I shall not, in this, quote many texts, and thus enter into a war with commentators. Texts may be found in support of opposed views, if taken alone, without context and qualification. Persons of most divergent ideas appeal to the same authorities. I shall put the ideal before you, as I have been taught of it, as I have seen it, letting its own beauty and sweet reasonableness recommend it to your hearts and consciences. Here and there, I may refer to sacred literature for illustration, but I am not building up those ideals by laborious comparison of text, but from a knowledge of the facts. The special part of our subject that we are going to study today is comparatively easy. No very serious opposition in the minds of many is likely to arise about it. There is one point, however, which will need the sacrifice of which I have just been speaking, in order that it may be practically worked out. But for the most part, the road is fairly clear with regard to the four great ideals in life. End of section 2